We're in the book of Ezekiel tonight, Ezekiel chapter 35. Actually, it jumped ahead in my study, and I thought we were in Ezekiel 37, the dry bones passage, and I was really excited to preach that. And I thought, oh, I'm missing a few chapters. So, back at 35. 35 verse 1, short chapter. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it. Say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir. I will stretch out my hand against you and make you desolation and a waste. I'll lay waste your cities. You'll become a desolation. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you have had everlasting enmity and have delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword, time of their calamity at the time of the punishment of their end therefore as i live declares the lord god i will give you over to bloodshed bloodshed you'll will pursue you since you've not hated bloodshed therefore bloodshed will pursue you i will make mount seir a waste and a desolation i'll cut off from it the one who passes through and returns i'll fill its mountains with all its slain and on your hills and your valleys and all your ravines those slain by the sword will fall I will make you an everlasting desolation, and your cities will not be inhabited. Then you'll know that I am the Lord. Because you have said these two nations, these two lands are, will be mine, we will possess them, although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will deal with you according to your anger, according to your envy, which you showed because of your hatred against them. So I will make myself known among them when I judge you. Then you'll know that I am the Lord. And I have heard all your revilings, which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid desolate, they are given to us for food. And you have spoken arrogantly against me, and have multiplied your words against me. I have heard it. Thus says the Lord God. As all the earth rejoices, I will make you a desolation. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel, because it was desolate, so I will do to you. You will be a desolation, O Mount Seir. All of Eden, Edom, all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious and holy God, we thank you very much for your Bible. We pray, Lord, that we would be increasingly tender to it, that we would be those people in the earth that tremble at your word, loving the things which are pleasant and um, taking a warning from the things which seem terribly dangerous, that that you would be honored in our use of your word. Make us be people of the book. Uh, but uh, out of the principle of love, Lord, may we seek to obey every, everything in your word. Uh, teach us what you would have us learn tonight. Holy Spirit, use me as your servant, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Pretty straightforward um, chapter, I think. The book of Ezekiel has been filled with this. I would argue a lot of the prophets are filled with this kind of language, which is clearly... A judgment. This is a divine rebuke against Mount Seir, and when you when you look at this, and we'll come to verse chapter thirty six as well. When you see God warning, or essentially um, forewarning uh, Mount Seir of a coming divine judgment against them, obviously, if you're hyper literal, this would be ridiculous. God is not rebuking inanimate rocks and dirt. And he's identifying the people that live in and around this particular mountain. And verse 15 gives us the identity. And Mount Seir is standing as a symbol for all of Edom. 
So God is promising a divine judgment upon the Edomites. And I'm going to argue as we go through the body of the sermon that the Edomites themselves are representative of all of the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. I think I can prove that from Scripture. But God is arguing um, against the people of Eden, Edom, excuse me, um, because they've been abusive of his name and um, they've been hateful to God's people. And when God uses this figurative language, mountain for people kind of language, the metaphor um, representing Edom, this would be like us referring to uh, Japan, let's say, by one of their prominent mountains. The only mountain I know in Japan would be Mount Fuji. So Mount Fuji would stand for Japan. And so uh, Mount Seir is standing for Edom. That's what's going on here. And when we come to chapter 36, if, just, if you just look over there, this mountain for people metaphor um, will be evident. God used it again in, in chapter 35 too. He refers to his people um, as a prophesied to the mountains of Israel. Oh, mountains of Israel. It's the, the same uh, notion. It's a, it's a metaphorical use of the word mountain. Um, I, I want to draw a connection between what we're looking at is the promised judgment on these Edomites in chapter 35 with what we looked at in chapter 34. Chapter 34 broke out into two sections, if you remember. The earlier part of chapter 34, God promises to remove the false shepherds um, in Israel that are being abusive to God's people. He says, I'm going to take them away from you. I'm essentially, I'm against you. He says that, I'm against you, false shepherds. And then the two-thirds of the back half of, of 34, God says, I'm going to shepherd you. And then ultimately, he's going to shepherd them through the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's going to remove the false shepherd shepherds because they're wolves. And then he promises, I'm going to take care of you. And last week's passage was... Um, to me, an enjoyable passage because it's so loving. God says, I, I promise I'll take care of you. And then we come here right away to another passage which seemingly doesn't fit. It's kind of a frightening passage. Love, 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 love. I promise to care for you. I'll be the good shepherd. I'll seek you. I'll bind you up. I'll take you to heaven. And then whammo, a divine judgment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue that there is um, that, that, that there is a um, a helpful connection between what we just have mentioned, between the promise of judgment and the promise of God's salvation to his uh, people. And I think the way that we could re reconcile those two seemingly incongruous ideas is this way. Uh, first, we have to recognize that both chapters are true. Both truths represented in both chapters are true. In other words, God has mercy on some, and then as we see here, God has justice on others. And it doesn't do away with any of God's justice. But God clearly says that he has a both. And um, I mentioned it just uh, a little bit ago. Saving faith, which is a gift of God, believes all of God's word. And I'm not saying that we believe all of it, all of it at once, all of it to the same degree. When I came to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I was a real believer. I thought there were mistakes in the Old Testament. I stood up in a Sunday school, I'm ashamed to say, in, I think it was Medfield, Massachusetts, in a Baptist church. Remember when Uzzah touches the ark and God kills him? Remember that story? I stood up and said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. This clearly has to be a, a mistake in the Old Testament. This is, this is ridiculous. He's trying to do something good, and why would God kill him? 
I was a real believer. I really trusted in Jesus Christ. I just didn't understand what I didn't understand. And the Sunday school teacher saw that I was ignorant, and he was very gracious to me and said, thanks for sharing. Please sit, sit down. And so we don't, we don't come to comprehend all of God's truth all at once. But what I mean is this. As we grow in grace, true faith will allow us to not only believe the things which are pleasant to us and we rejoice in those promises God promises to save us but we will also tremble at the threatenings of of God I've shared many times before early on uh, early on in that first year of Christianity when I started reading through the Old Testament I got to those judgment passages I would just I had fits and the man that was helping me understand God's word he said do you believe it's true? I said, I do believe it's true. I just don't know how it works. That's different than saying, I don't like this, therefore it's not true. True faith can say, I believe and I submit. But at the same time, we could say, I don't fully understand, but I do believe. So when we're told God promises to save you in Christ, we, we rejoice. But when we come here and he says, I promise to pour out my condemnation and desolation on those who hate me and hate my children, we're not rejoicing at that. We believe, we weep for the people that receive this, we tremble for them, but we believe. Does that make sense? So true faith can receive both truths and even the truths that seem difficult to us. It, it, it is common to say, I think it's the flesh, it's common to say, I don't like to hear that God will have judgment on those who hate him and hate his children. Therefore, because I don't like it, it's not true. I don't like to hear that God has his children and God has his enemies. I don't like that God makes that distinction. Therefore, it's not true. You see what I'm getting at? That's a bad idea. The, the book of James, I forget which chapter... God says it's a bad idea to sit as a judge over the judge of the Bible, both law and gospel. We're making ourselves little lords over the, the Lord. The better way is to come in submissive faith and say, Lord, you, you clearly have said this. And it has to be true. And if we don't understand how it works, we submit to God and ask him to help us. But we don't make ourselves to be the arbiter of God's truth. And the way that it works on the flip side is... I love to hear that you're a God of love and that you have children. Therefore, that's true. They're both true. They're both true. One is very, very pleasant to us. And there are things, there are passages in, in the Bible that are very, very terrible um, uh, uh, for us to hear. It, it's terrible to hear this kind of a passage. And when we look at it, I would argue if we could read through a chapter 35 God promises to have judgment on these Edomites, and we just think, of course, of course, they're unbelievers. Of course, God will judge them, physical death and then eternal death. Of course, let's go out for Chinese food. Let's go out for Italian, of course. These are human beings, and their judgment will be forever. Imagine if our father or mother were Edomites. Um, so this is the kind of passage that I think we should take our... We should take our shoes off for every passage of the Bible. But judgment passages, when we receive them rightly, they're really overwhelming. Um, but it, but it, 
it, it clearly, clearly is here. Now, when God says he is going to have mercy on some and he is going to have justice on others, there is another thing that rises up even even with true Christians because we still have the flesh. We would say something like this. That's not fair. It is not fair of God to say, I have children that I'm going to save. I have enemies that I'm going to judge. And the flesh says, that's not fair. Again, that gets us back to that James principle. It's not good and you can't do it anyways but it's not good to sit as a judge over over what god does john MacArthur helped me one time or many times because i used to be kind of a devotee listening to him and reading his material he said everything that god does does is right because he does it and so it's never proper for us as the creature to say anything that god does is wrong if god says i have mercy on whom i have mercy and I have wrath on whom I have wrath, that has to be right. It has to be right because God does it. Even though we realize some people say, yes, I like 34. No, I don't like 35. If God does to some in 34 as he saves them, and if he judges in 35, that would be wrong of God. What does God owe any sinner? What does he owe him according to a strict justice? It would be a chapter 35. So because God is merciful to some, it doesn't, it, he's not obligated to be merciful to all. Um, although I do understand it's difficult. And there are some that would say, when God promises to have mercy on some in 34, and justice on others, chapter 35, that the ideas of mercy and justice are not compatible, that one cancels out the other. Either God has to be all mercy or all justice. Again, it's, it's not Bible. I realize that there are some philosophical difficulties for us. The longer I'm a Christian, I think the more aware I am of my own limitations. There are things in God's Word that we cannot fully understand. We can understand in part, but we cannot fully reconcile certain things. Um, if we were to say, God has to be all mercy and no justice, that would cause God to deny his own immutable character. And what do I mean by that? God cannot deny his righteous character. God has said the soul that sins must what? Die. So we can't, we, we can't make an idol of God's mercy or God's love. And we can't say God cannot have justice. He has to be just. He has to be righteous. And where we know that God manifests both justice and mercy is obviously the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, a long introduction to what we're looking at, but the subjects seem so radically different from one another. I promise to have mercy on my children, and I promise to have judgment on those who hate me and my children. And I'm going to show you there's another connection, and I hope I don't, I don't seem strange in this. Chapter 35, in a way, or in part, is God carrying out what he's promised to do in chapter 34. In chapter 34, God promises, I am going to preserve my sheep. And in chapter 35, he says to these Edomite wolves, and I'm going to destroy the wolves. In part, God preserving his sheep is when he destroys the wolves of the sheep. Does that make sense? When God says, I have vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath, chapter 9 of Romans, some of the mercy that God has to vessels of mercy is when he manifests his wrath to vessels of wrath. And you think, well, that's a strange concept. It really isn't. When God said, I'm going to deliver my children um, 
out of the bonds of Egypt. I'm going to save them from their enemies. One of the ways or part of how God saved them from their enemies, think of the Red Sea, is he destroyed the enemies. I'm going to save my people and I'm going to destroy my enemies. And in part, the salvation of the people is seen in part by the destruction of the enemies. The same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. God preserved righteous Lot. He saved righteous Lot. And in part, he did that by destroying the unrighteous Sodomites. So God says, I promise to save my sheep. And he does that in part by destroying the wolves, both the Israelitish false shepherd wolves and here the Edomites that are preying on God's people. I want you to think about this. When Christ comes back, if any unbelievers, enemies of God, enemies of Christ were permitted in heaven, what would heaven be like for us? If we went to heaven and all of a sudden America en masse or the world en masse with no distinction among sheep, goats, goats, believers, unbelievers could immediately be whisked into heaven, what would heaven be like? It would not be heaven. It would not be heaven. Part of the heaven of heaven will be there'll be no more enemies. We're going to beat our spears into plowsh. There will be no more world, no more flesh, no more devil. They're all going to be put down. That's what I'm arguing is being taught to us symbolically in chapter 35. So part of God's mercy, I know it sounds strange towards his people, is his justice towards those who hate him and hate his people. Um, And God is not unjust to do these kind of things. So it's a promise of judgment upon the Edomites, and actually it's a repetition. Sometimes people think, well, it's improper of God to judge, and who, you know, we've never even heard that God will judge. God in his word, and this has probably kind of been a hard series because he says it so much. This is why I argue for preaching through books and not topicals. If I was a topical preacher, I would never in a million years choose, never. Maybe in my early ministry I would because I was just silly and immature. As an older guy, I would never do this. Never. I would preach on love and mercy and assurance every single sermon. I would never touch this. Um, this is why I think it's the benefit of preaching through a book. This is the way that, this is what God has put. This is, this is how he puts it. He is the quantity of judgment, the quantity of the expressions of mercy. And he puts it here. And I'm getting at this. He repeatedly says to Edom, he repeatedly says to his enemies. And remember, the book is not given to the enemies per se. It's given to the children of God. This is for our encouragement. This is for the, the warning of the enemy and the terror of the enemy. But it's the encouragement for us. And we are the people that are going to read it. We are the people that are going to believe it. Chapter 25, God has already said this in the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 25, verse 12. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom has acted against the house of Judah by taking vengeance against Judah and has incurred grievous guilt and avenged themselves upon them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch my hand against Edom. I'll cut off from it man or beast. I'll lay it waste from Teman to Dedan. They'll fall by the sword. I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel. Therefore, they will act in Edom according to my anger, according to my wrath. Thus, they will know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. If you think of what is the minor prophet, uh, the minor prophet um, Obadiah is a very short chapter. I want to say there's something like 20, one chapter, one chapter and short chapter. I want to say there's like 20, 21 verses in Obadiah. The whole thing is a prophecy against Edom. 
It's God's denunciation of Edom. In fact, if you run through many of the major prophets, uh, it, it's in there. It's in Isaiah. It's in Jeremiah. Psalm 137. And, and I'll quote that in just a bit. It was the Edomites that told the Israelites when they were suffering under the bondage of Babylon, sing for us a song. So how was it in your land when you were free? They're mocking Israel. And then God says, and I'll read it in just a bit, those terrible words at the very end of Psalm 137. Now let's look at the identity of these Edomites. Who are these people? Uh, one, they're not Israel, but they descended from uh, the, a similar line. Uh, Edom means red, and they come from Esau, which means red. They're descendants of Esau. And so Jacob and Esau with twin brothers, uh, same father and same mother. Um, Edom and Jacob had their brother, their father and their mother, uh, Isaac and Rebekah. Edom came, Esau came out first. Jacob came out second. Esau obviously was the elder and Jacob the younger. But they're twin brothers. And so they have Isaac as their dad. And that means they have Abraham as their grandfather. I want you to think of that. Here are people that they're mocking God at the very end. He says, I hear you mocking me. They mock the God of heaven and earth. And I hear you reviling against my children, Israel. They come from Abraham. Abraham is their grandfather. Isaac, Abraham is the, the progenitor of the Jews. He is the prototypical believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3. And we have the faith of Abraham. We're children of Abraham. It's a, it's a believer. Abraham, he's one of the patriarchs. Christ comes through Abraham. And, and Isaac is the son of the promise. Read Galatians um, 3 and 4, Galatians 4, Romans chapter 9. Jesus is the son of the promise. So here are these two patriarchs. He comes from them. Esau does. And, and the people that come from him are pictures of enemies of God. They hate God. Um, I, I, I wish, I, I mean, I wish it would be a sin. <laughs> I suppose it would be a sin, so I don't wish it. Every mother and father wishes, every believing mother and father wishes that we could give faith in the conception of our children. We wish that believing mom and believing daughter, dad, husbands, believing mother and father would conceive only believers. We wish we could do it that way. Faith does not come by conception. This man had Abraham as a grandfather. Abraham is in heaven, but Esau is not. And he has Isaac, his father, his son of the promise, is in heaven, but his son Esau is not. He's an unbeliever. And so we, we learn that faith is not conveyed by natural generation. It's a gift of Almighty God. I'm not discounting the benefit of believing mothers and fathers. Look in this room. Most of us had, to some degree or another, a believing mother and father. So God does use means. It's just not a quid pro quo. Um, it's according to the freedom of God. But this man had a believing mother and father, but he himself, Esau, was an unbeliever. And why, why can I be so sure that... Esau, th through whom Edom comes, is an unbeliever. Yes, I can be sure. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, Esau was a godless and a what kind of man? An immoral man. He was a godless and a pornea kind of man. I don't want to go off on my rant on that. I'm going to get some 
some handouts, which I think it would be helpful for the church. One of the marks of apostasy, or one of the marks of unbelief, is unrepentant, uh, immoral. Uh, lots of marks, true. But so physical descent does not impart saving faith, and then the godly lives of mothers and fathers cannot necessarily convert. But that's who these people come from. They come from this man Esau. So th- their their family. Israel and Esau, Jacob and Esau are family. Israel and Edom are family. They have the common progenitor of Abraham. And one became the line of the believers and one became the line of the unbelievers. And I know there are unbelievers in the line of Israel. I understand that. Uh, You remember what God says concerning Jacob and Esau. Jacob I loved and Esau I what? Hated. I don't want to get too far afield on that. The business of sovereign reprobation is, is a terrifying business. Again, things that we like and things that we don't like. We love sovereign election that God chooses to save, who he chooses to save. We love that because we think that we're elect, because we believe and praise God. The business of sovereign reprobation is true. We don't know who the elect are. We don't know who the reprobate are. We, we only can judge by based on looking at repentance or faith, if you had looked at Saul in 1 and 2 of Acts chapter 9, the only thing that you conclude is you conclude he's an unbeliever. You can't conclude whether a person's a reprobate or elect um, by looking <laughs> in their eyes. It's, it's only by do you believe or not. So you conclude whether they're believers or unbelievers. But there is such a thing as reprobation that God passes over with his saving grace. And he's a picture of Esau is a picture of a, a man that God passed over with a saving grace. He left him alone. There are people that spend their whole life saying to, to Jesus, leave me alone. And someday Jesus Christ will leave them alone. He'll say, depart from me, you work of iniquity. So these people, not every single one of them will, will not be in heaven. There are people even within Edom. Oh, there's a place in uh, the book of Isaiah where God will save some from Edom. But they're a picture of the reprobate man. They're a picture of the natural man which is why I'm, I'm arguing that when God says, I'm going to judge Edom, um, they, they are the prototypical unbeliever, the prototypical enemy of God and enemy of God's uh, people. And it, it's not a strange thing. You remember when the two babies were in, um, uh, were in the womb of their mother. Um, remember what God said? Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And so she said, if it is so, why am I this way? You remember what was said next? The two children are, are what? They're two nations. So even God, in the conception of these two boys, used them as symbols of two peoples. And then God further says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 34, uh, hear, O nations, and then it will go, uh, 34 verse 1, hear, O nations, and listen, and it talks about ju- judgment, and then down at verse 5, it uses the, the term Edom, and God will bring a great slaughter on the Edomites. So when God is promising judgment on Edom, does it mean specifically these people? Yes, but is it broader uh, to those who hate God? And much as we saw, I didn't bring it out in the morning sermon because I had too much. Remember when Jesus said to um, Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? Jesus is identifying himself with his people. It's an aspect of his love. And God says the same thing essentially to the Edomites. You have attacked me. Well, they're attacking the Israelites. 
And so God identifies with his people. And so God is saying to these enemies of his people, um, I take it as a strike against me, and I, I, I will repay you to your face. So these people are symbolic of those who hate God and hate God's people. Why is God so angry with these Edomites? Why is God so angry? He alludes to it at a couple of places. Obviously, they're sinners, and they're sinners found apart from Christ. Um, my wife and I were just having some spiritual discussion this afternoon. Should we as human beings really be Christian human beings? Should we look at another person and say, I'm utter, I, just, I can't even believe why you're such a filthy sinner. I, I, I can't even imagine it. Saved sinners should not really be stunned that unsaved sinners act like sinners. And it's, for me at least, it's hard for me to be morally indignant. I mean, I would like it because I would feel better about myself by feeling worse about someone else. But it's hard for me to be morally indignant over the sin of another person because I know, even to a small degree, my own sin. And God has forgiven me. And so when I say that God is going to judge these people because they're sinners... It's because they're sinners and they're found in their sin. We're all big sinners. But he alludes to some of the sins that they have done that have aggravated their sins. And he, he says it in a number of places. And he does this clearly in the book of, um, in the book of uh, Obadiah. He calls them sons of Jacob. Uh, excuse me, sons of uh, Isaac. And in the notion is, or oh, brother of Jacob, excuse me, brother of Jacob. The notion is, is that they're family. We aggravate our sins. We make them worse, depending on who's committing it, depending against whom we are committing it. If we were to, I don't know, strike just a stranger, we would hit the stranger. Is that a sin? Yes. Is it obnoxious? Of course. If we were to strike our mother or our father, God forbid, would that be... I mean, I can't imagine it because I love my folks so much. Would that be such an aggravation of... You're saying you're striking, but the difference is now you've hit family. Let's say you struck your brother or your sister, and I'm not talking when your kiddo's playing. You struck them. It's obnoxious. They're kin. They're your family. And so one of the things that God is charging the Edomites with is you're attacking... Your, you come from the same stock... Father Abraham, Father Isaac, and he charges with them with an aggravation of their sin. And it would be like a Christian harming a Christian. It's worse than a Christian harming an unbeliever. A Christian harming an unbeliever is awful. But a Christian harming a Christian is doubly, doubly awful because there is that filial connection. So God charges them with exacerbating their crimes because they are kin. Now, you remember one of the things that he's alluding to that Psalm 137 brings out and some other places bring out, Obadiah brings out, is what the, what the Edomites have done to the children of Israel over the years. They were fighting in the book of Genesis. Jacob and Esau were fighting from the book, book of Genesis, which is the time of Moses, um, excuse me, uh, beyond, earlier than Moses, clear through to the time of David and to the time of the Babylonian captivity. But let me read this to you. Uh, around about the time of Moses. Numbers chapter 20. Uh, Those were the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord 
and proved himself holy among them. From Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. This is the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, and they send messengers to the king of Edom saying, we just want to walk through your land. We're on the way to the promised land. We're kin. We're family. We don't want any of your land. We don't want to fight you. We're going to be at peace with you. In fact, we're not going to fight you. We just want to pass through in peace. Thus your brother Israel has said, they, they, they use the kinship connection. Thus your brother Israel has said, you know all the hardship that has befallen us. They were slaves for 430 years. That our fathers went down to Egypt. We stayed in Egypt a long time. The Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice, sent an angel, brought us out from the land of Egypt. Now behold, we're in Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Now listen to this. This is Israel asking Edom nicely, please let us pass through your land. We'll not pass through your field or through a vineyard. We'll not even drink your water from a well. We'll go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or left, until we pass through your territory. That's, we don't want anything. We're not even going to walk, we're not going to hurt your land, we're not going to take any of your land, we don't even want your water. We're going to the promised land. Edom, however, said to him, you shall not pass through us, or I will come out with a sword against you. Again, the sons of Israel said to him, we will go up by the highway, and if our livestock do drink, and if the animals do drink by mistake, we'll pay the price. Let me only pass through on my feet, nothing else. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with a heavy force and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through its territory. So Israel turned away from him. I would argue, beloved, I don't know, pick a religious person that's not a Christian and they were in slavery for 430 years. And these different religion people than us said to us, will you just please let us walk through your town? We're, we're, we're just, we're gonna, we won't do anything to you. We just want to go to another town. We, we have a different God than you. We've been slaves. Will you please let us go through the land? What would you say? Of course you can pass through. Remember in our text in chapter 35, it says over and over and over again, but you hated them. You hated them. This is a long-standing feud between Edom against Israel, and it's mostly Edom against Israel. They hate them. And why do they hate them so much? It's a spiritual war. It's spiritual. It, it doesn't even look it doesn't even look right. And I'm just going to reference it and then. I'm just going to reference it. We're not going to go there. They were rejoicing. Let's fast forward from the time of Moses to the time of uh, to Joshua and the, and the Babylonian captivity. They enter the, the, the promised land. Joshua, promised land, Babylonian captivity, uh, off to Babylon. When Babylon sacked Ju- Judah, the Edomites were rejoicing. So they wouldn't let him at the first captivity when they were emancipated. They wouldn't let him walk through their land. And then we're going into the second, the smaller captivity. They were happy. They were rejoicing. And later there'll be other texts that said, and they actually attacked him. You remember, oftentimes, you remember Schindler's List? I've mentioned this before. The Nazis made the Jews walk around naked. Many times in ancient times, when you were taken away captive, you were naked. It was a way to humiliate you, to shame you. And then they'd put a hook in your nose, a hook in your your lip, and then take you away like that. It's just horrific. 
And then can you imagine attacking people that are fleeing for their lives, oftentimes without any clothes, and you're attacking them at that very moment? It's an aggravation of the crime. It's, it's just hatred and evil in its zenith. And what the Edomites were saying is great. We think this is, a, we, we think this is great. They're rejoicing at the downfall. Beloved, is there such a thing as God's judgment on those who die apart from Christ? Yes. What real Christian, if, if what real Christian would rejoice at that? There's something wrong. This is it's not biblical. It's a, it's a gross sin to rejoice at the downfall of another human being. Is sick. It's it's Satan like. Um, so. No one properly is thinking, good, good on good, you're going to get your just desserts. Actually, the Bible says, don't. When your enemy falls, don't go, ha, 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 because it will displease God. And that's what they're doing. And so they were using it as a time to attack the Israelites when they're at their weakest. Again, the aggravation of sin. And one of the things, if you look at Psalm 137, if you look at Psalm 137, the Edomites were when the Jews were being carried away into Babylonian captivity, they were using that as an opportunity to attack the women and to attack the pregnant um, women and to attack the women with children. And if you look at the beginning of Psalm 137, it's the mockery of the Edomites when the Jews are in their, like, in their lowest point. They say, sing us this wonderful song. Look at the end of Psalm 137. I'm not going to read it because it's so upsetting. But just read it. God, the, in, in, in chapter 35, there's a principle of lex talionis. As you are a people of bloodshed, so you're going to receive bloodshed. That's, some, that's our passage. Somewhere in 37 is, how, is in part how God is going to exact that. As you did to the Israelitish women, you destroyed them. As you did to the Israelitish women with children, what you did to their babies, it's going to happen to you. That's a principle of strict justice. Does it... Is it terrifying? Can I fully understand some things about it? No, but it's true. God says, I'm going to have upon you strict justice, is what he's saying. And as you've done to other people, my people, I'm going to do it to you. Now, when you think, well, why is this here? We've mentioned this before. We're the little flock. I'm not sure what I believe to the, what extent the little flock will grow in this world. I would love if the whole world would become lovers of Jesus and there would be no unbelievers. That will happen one day. But I mean before Jesus comes back. God in chapter 35 is trying to encourage his Jewish people that are living among enemies. They're always going to live among enemies. They're going to live and die among enemies. That's kind of my real view my real view is that we're the little flock of true believers among wolves. Jesus says that, in fact. I'm going to send you sheep out as sheep among what? Wolves. And one of the encouragements that God's... You can't get away from enemies. You just cannot get away from them. You can't move to a commune. You have to die and go to heaven to be get away from enemies. But the encouragement that God is giving to his people, as sobering as it is... Someday you're going to look around and they're all going to be gone. And we're not going to do it. 
We are sheep. We, we're sheep and we're doves. I am against hurting anybody. I'm not against if you're a police officer or if you're in the army or the military. I do believe there's just war. I do believe in the capital punishment when it's carried out rightly. I do believe in self-defense. But all of those things aside, true believers are sheep. We're not the ones taking vengeance. We're not the ones exacting justice on the wolves. God is. God is. God says to his lamb-like people, there's going to be a day. We're not going to do it. We're not going to run around and physically put down our enemies because we'd end up killing sheep. Um, but God says, I, I will do it. And you'll look around and all of the Edomites will be gone and only the Israel of God will be there. And I will do it. We tremble at it. We warn people of the coming judgment and those who leave unbeliever to come to believe in Jesus, praise God. And those who don't, the end of Psalm, the end of Romans 8, were like sheep considered to be what? Slaughter. But then what does he say? Nothing will separate you from my love. Someday, God will separate all the wolves from all the sheep, for which we rejoice. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.